This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 9 starts after this. Go back to uh, the beginning of the Jack Kerouac connection. Um, I just read On the Road and then followed it up with Subterraneans and the Dharma Bums and Visions of Cody. And Start with On the Road. What is On what the is Road it? was great because it... Um, he wrote it in a with a kind of jazz rhythm uh, and a kind of spontaneity of prose. There's a thought that spontane, you know, I don't always agree with this, but again, I like people that I don't always have to agree with. You know, and Kerouac used to say, first thoughts, best thought." That the human mind's first thoughts probably the truer, more accurate one. Then we start self-editing. So the first thought's the most interesting, best thought. And so he let that go with On the Road, where it was a traditional um, road journey. You know, it's like Huck Finn and, and uh, Huckleberry Finn and Jim going down the river. I mean, it's are two guys, um, G.I. Bill, after World War II, looking for his buddy's father who left him. And they're traveling kind of aimlessly around America looking for the dad. And uh, the writing descriptions of places like, uh, you know, the mountains by, uh, at El Paso and the, uh, Texas or his talking about Montana. And actually, he writes about Medora, North Dakota in the book. And he writes about places and he makes going on the road fun. I believe that the great American, one of the great American traditions is the road trip. Take getting your car and going and seeing America. It's a... It's it's just special. We're an automobile society, and the road trip is a kind of rite of passage. When did he write on the road? Well, he started writing it in the 1940s, uh, late 40s, early 50s, but it didn't come out until 57. So uh, what it bottled up was that feeling after World War II of we the war's over, let's go have fun. I mean, you might find an on-the-road written after COVID, uh, finally gone, and some young person might write about the liberation of, of COVID gone. And, uh, and he, uh, he was from Lowell, Massachusetts. He played football at Columbia, got hurt, and um, that was considered a masterpiece on the road, still is. We, you know, the New York Times gave it this giant rave review, and he continued writing and died uh, in 1969, um, of alcohol, um, alcoholism. He died in Florida, living with his mother. Uh, very sad last years of uh, Kerouac. He, he was um, like a meteor who flashed in the sky and then faded away. Where is the original copy? Original on the road is owned by Jim Ursay, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts. And uh, Ursay called me and, uh, and asked if I would go with him to buy that on-the-road scroll at auction in New York. Uh, Sotheby's had it up. And I said, Jim, I got to teach. I can't. And, you know, he said, look, you got to come because I just want a Kerouac scholar with me. And, he, and I said, I can't. He said, Doug, you understand, we're not going to bid. I'm going to buy. Like, I'll pay $10 million for it if I have to. I'm buy- yeah. So you're not going to an auction where, oh, maybe we're, we're going to get it. And it started intriguing me more and more. And so he sent the um, Colts plane to pick me up, and it flew me to New York and stayed at the Waldorf and had dinner with him and his family, his, his um, 
children. And um, and we then went to the auction. I sat by him, and he paid, I think it was like $2.2 million or something for it. He would have gone all the way up. He was going to get it uh, because he was influenced by it. And it's called The Scroll. It was written on Japanese uh, sort of uh, rolling paper. So what Kerouac did, instead of ripping off one sheet at a time typing you could keep typing and it was just you know big so the whole book is like a roll you know the original one and it needed curated um from you know um like any document does i suppose but ursay's provided a great job of curating it and he gives it on loan to new york public library where kerouac's papers are or to a university Kerouac in 20, March of 2022 would have been his 100th birthday. So I need to call her, say, and get him to do some public thing with that scroll. What is your relationship to the Kerouac name now? Do you edit anything for him on a regular basis? No. <laughs> I got, uh, I was a while ago, you know, um, I did edit a book called Windblown World of the On the Road Journals. And then the Library of America, which is my favorite thing in, a, in the world of the arts and culture, the black uh, dust jacket volumes where they bring great writing back and beautiful use of paper and cover and bookmark. And, and it's almost like the highest honor a writer could have to be in the Library of America, honestly. Who uh, it's a private institution. It's um, it's run as like a nonprofit out of New York City, and you know Vonnegut, like when he made the Library of America, that means your reputation sort of set forever. Um, Albert Murray got his essays into that. Um, Kerouac, I did the the road novels of Jack Kerouac for the Library of America. I was the editor for that project. Um, for them, I wrote a cover story on Kerouac for the Atlantic Monthly. So I used to be more engaged, but right now I'm uh, three kids in high school, and I'm focusing on the book of the moment. So some of that stuff's my back pages. I there are writers I love right now, and I I, I read more than I read people we're talking about because they they were influencing me when I was younger. But subsequently, I've I, every year I kind of go through a fad of a different writer that I just start reading everything of them I can. What do you know about Kerouac that would help us better understand why we should read him? Um, he was an original, too. He didn't follow any... I mean, he followed Thomas Wolfe's trail a little bit, but he tried to celebrate America, uh, try to get to the just. I mean, the most moving writings of... I can feel... I mean, he would say things like, in the 50s, America... Um, you know, where thou goest in your green automobile at night. And there are times you drive in America at night and you see all these cars and headlights going all these different directions. And, you know, I think about wherever we never know where everybody's headed as they're crossing us, you know. Let me read to you. I've got some, some quotes from him and just <clears throat> interpret them for us. Uh, this is a brief one. The only truth is music. Well, there's a lot. Vonnegut felt that way, too. Uh, Vonnegut once did a a writer's workshop class, Brian, at the Iowa. That's like the number one creative writing. He, it was snowing. He came in, and I, I, I'm going to say it wrong, but he brought a cassette, pushed uh, Bach um, recording or something, and then just said, this is, and then like walked out with the music on, like you 
you'll never be able to achieve this. I mean, there's a feeling that some of that classical music might be the greatest, and jazz, like Duke Ellington, might be the greatest arts contribution of all. You know, music is, I mean, what would life be without music? Look how much music you have in your daily life. All the time. All the time. All right, this quote, the best teacher is experience and not through someone's distorted point of view that comes from on the road. Yeah, that's the key. I just think you go, go, there are people that do things and do it. You know, if you're going to have an idea, go for it. If you have a dream, go for it. Experience things. Don't just talk about it. Go do it. And um, that's where I think that differentiates people in life, people that are, be, you know, I, I'm not very keen on the um, slacker model of just, you know, uh, I, I read what recently Rose Kennedy, the mother of John F. Kennedy, used to say, you know, every hour has to be purposeful. Make your life purposeful, like do something. Quote, great, this is from Jack Kerouac, great things are not accomplished by those who yield to trends and fads and popular opinion. Yeah, you got to go your own route, got to cut your own way and be innovative, take your own vision. It's not for everybody, but if you want to really be a pioneer, you have to be an innovator. If you're going to try to come make, you know, you don't need to... Um, Give it a shot. Give something new a shot. Take, you know, risk, risk. T- you've got to take some risk. Uh, and, you know, so like I mentioned you to know, my son, Johnny says he wants to be a general manager of an NBA team. Well, I, he's a young kid. He's watching NBA basketball and he thinks that would be great. But I mean, he can't do that. If he has the dream and the guts and the fight and the moxie, I still believe in America. You can you can do things, but you've got to work harder than people let you let on. There was a story somewhere that you were recruited possibly to write the third volume of uh, Winston Churchill for William Manchester when he died. Um, I there no, I never could do. I wouldn't have done that. But there was there was a, a trolling about. Uh, <laughs> I, I love William Manchester's writing, though he's just remarkable, and it it is. Um, you know, there used to be a man named Gordon Prang who wrote on Pearl Harbor all these incredible books and at the end had to have help finishing some of those. But I'm not the right person on Winston Churchill, even though I, I love him. I really focus. All my books have been about Americans. And you never thought about, you know, Paul Reed ended up doing that book. Matter of fact, he, no. he sat in that chair right yeah, there and no, talked about it. no. Would you ever let anybody do that for you if you had a book halfway done? Yeah, I, I never say no because I don't know the deprivations, or as Kerouac said, all we know for sure, or all we know for sure, are the forlorn rags of growing old. Uh, I don't know what I'll feel like at eighty-five, but I suppose if I had a half a book finished and suddenly was in chemo treatments and couldn't, uh, I might ask somebody, "Can you help me? You know, want to be a partner?" Plausible. Robert Carroll says he'd never <clears throat> let that happen. Carroll for, can't do yeah. that. He's got too much of a distinction on what he does. I think that would be hard to do with him. But with somebody like myself, it would be doable. Do you have things that you will not do? I, I'll give you an example. Shelby Foote wouldn't sign books. Some people won't shake hands. Uh, um, 
You know, you know, my only fear now is I, you don't want to, I get mixed up with now with COVID, not shaking hands, but even before that in the South, uh, you know, I live in Austin. When you meet people, you give them a half a hug oftentimes. And then up north, that's, uh, that's taboo. There are different little cultural mores like that. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, I'll sign any book or do a photo. If somebody comes, I try to be um, as kind as I can if somebody's purchasing um, a book of mine. I don't really think I have. I just won't do a lot of... Um, you know, I for example, these are where I kind of draw lines. Uh, the um, Bill Maher has a show one. I was booked for the Nixon tapes. I was supposed to fly from New York to California, and I said, "Great, I'm going to do Bill Maher. It's a promotion of a book." And then I found out the eve before I wasn't really talking about my book. I would be stuck on a panel with like four people, not saying a word about my book, but they would show the picture of it up, and I just canceled, and I don't think they were used to people not doing the show. I've never done Bill Mark. I didn't, I didn't like that. You know, I felt I was getting booked to do a, talk about a book. I work really hard on this. Why can't I talk about it? I don't want to play, you know, it's my, my movie, not yours. Um, but also, I, Mar was starting to put people of religion and mock religion, and I don't do that. I don't make fun of people that are Catholic or Muslim or Buddhist or, you know, whatever, the Hindu. I mean, it, it's people's own business, their religion. And I judge people how, they're, how they treat me. You did a whole documentary on religion. Yeah, Sat- I, was, I wasn't Satire. very keen on it. Uh, I wasn't very keen on the putting down of, um, of people's sense of faith because we're, we're, all, we're all, you know, on such limited time here. And if people find a lifeline of faith that brings them happiness and joy, so be it. But I'm not keen on get, mocking somebody's religion. What's the story of you going to Cuba? I went to Cuba. I was with CBS. One of the things, I was a historian for CBS for quite a while. I did the inaugurals with, you know, I, Bob Schieffer and Katie Couric and... You know, I ended up writing the book on Walter Cronkite. So I represented CBS, and Christopher Hitchens um, was writing for Vanity Fair, and the actor Sean Penn was writing for The Nation. And this all started on Hitchens and I, who were friends. We were with Sean one night, and he was saying that he can get us an interview with Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro. And we said, great, do it. You know, and unfortunately, the next morning, I'm, I'm afraid Sean probably had a thing. Oh, God, now I got I to gotta, I gotta live up to my word. Um, but Hitchens in particular was pushing Sean on it. Like, well, you said, you know, <laughs> that we could do it. And Sean delivered. We went into Venezuela and Sean liked Hugo Chavez. Hitchens loathed him. I didn't know enough about him. And I, I leaned towards not trusting him, but I was willing to kind of see my gut on him. And he went well. I mean, he was very funny, Chavez. The biggest thing I learned from him was that revolution they had there, the red, was from the Cincinnati Reds baseball team. <laughs> because, the, you know, these baseball players from Venezuela, you know, Miguel Cabrera, and they're on and on. It's a big deal, baseball in Venezuela. And the Reds are, were the team because a shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds, Dave Concepcion, grew up near Chavez. And uh, 
I was wanting to give him a chance until I started interviewing him and he fell into full bore conspiracy mode. You know, he said that the United States never went walked on the moon, which, as you know, I'm a big Neil Armstrong uh, space guy. I was aghast. And then he started intimating that 9-11 was a conspiracy. And at that point, I realized that I understood quickly why we weren't in good relationships with his government. He was a uh, he was um, charismatic, but really disliked the United States and uh, uh, wasn't, you know. How, how did you and Sean Penn and uh, Christopher Hitchens get to Cuba? Um, we then flew on a plane from Cuba, a Cuban plane, to go meet Fidel and Raul, supposedly, to interview them. And when we got there, we um, everything went okay. We landed. We got into a quarters they put us. But uh, we met uh, Fidel Castro's son, and Sean had brought a lot of baseballs to give out. And we had a nice meal, and we went to the restaurants. Everything was good. But then we kept not getting our interview, not getting our interview with Fidel Castro. And CBS News told me that they really just wanted a photo, if I could get a photo of him, because there had not been seen a photograph of him for a long time. They said, if, if you can get one photo and boot it to us in New York, that you'd be, we'd consider this a successful venture. Um, and suddenly there's a knock on the doors, and a, like a little SWAT team came and took Sean away, and they wouldn't let Hitchens and I see um, Castro. Did Sean Penn see him? Yes. They had a long evening together, and we were, they blackballed Hitchens and I. They didn't like something in our, you know, they thought we were too, too um, rah-rah American or something. I don't know why. Um, but, you know, at that point, I was ready to get home, and the thing with Hugo Chavez was interesting. I got to see Venezuela, and I got to see some of Havana, and I was ready to go home, and Hitchens was livid. He was... I know the walls are listening to me, you know, you know, just denouncing the Castro regime, pacing about. He was reading a Henry James book. So I finally just said, look, you got to come down. Let's just let's take a walk. They'll follow us. And so we went and um, we went and took a walk and he calmed down a little bit. But I mean, he had steam coming out of him because he had spent a lot of time setting up for the big interview. And at that point, he he wanted he thought Sean shouldn't have gone. That we were three musketeers, that you stick with us. And uh, and I kept saying maybe they'll come back for us. You know, maybe maybe somebody will come. And it didn't happen. And so um, I was just like, you know, it was a good try. And uh, Hitchens was angry at Sean for going. And I remember flying home like they wouldn't talk. And it was so it was. Uh, it, it was it was grim. How but, did you get back to the states? Uh, we commercial flew out of uh, Havana, some uh, to Miami on some flight, and then you know, um, we flew originally out of um, Houston. There was a nonstop. I think there still is Houston to Caracas. Uh, even though we have no embassy in Venezuela, the oil industry still has a nonstop flight into Venezuela. Um, and incidentally, Sean and uh, Hitchens be great friends. They're really good. They, they more than patched up their difference because in the end, Sean did his best to try to do live up to what he said he could do. And it, you can't predict somebody like Fidel Castro. But I, I was interested, the Castro 
it was friendship with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the great novelist, and Marquez used to keep a light on at night to let Fidel know when he was up, and they used to talk and brainstorm and all of this. And uh, and um, the, the Raul was available down there, but it wasn't the same. I teach Cold War history, so to have actually seen Castro, get to ask him a couple questions, would have been of interest, but alas, it didn't happen. My memory of Fidel Castro and American media is that the media in this country salivated over the opportunity to talk to him. Almost left us with the impression that Cuba is a really sharp, wonderful place. Why did they do that? There's no evidence that you can see today that that would be the way to live. I think Castro became a folk hero with Che Guevara there in the early 60s. Hollywood adopted him. It got caught up with the you know, it was a period when there was Mao's red books were being handed out at Berkeley, and uh, there were, you know, Black Panthers that were talking about Fidel Castro. And I think that he lived so many lives, like the CIA tried to kill Castro and he survived, and that we go through president after the other, but he's, he was like Eisenhower through Obama or something, you know. <laughs> it's like they never leave, so it's his always. His brother just left. Yeah, his brother just left, so. There's this sort of, um, you know, presence of somebody like that. But I, um, I found it repressive in Cuba. Everything is antiquated and quasi-broken down. Um, but if Havana's a beautiful uh, city because it's in disrepair. So you're kind of going back in time when you're there. And that part of it was really interesting. Uh, you know, I was interested with Theodore Roosevelt's um, you know, famous, you know, campaign. And, you know, he's, they liked him in Cuba, Theodore Roosevelt, because he was part of the Cuban revolution, um, the liberation from Spain. And then the Bay of Pigs, they celebrate there. So it was a very interesting educational uh, journey for me. That's why I didn't care one way or another. But yes, you're right. He was like, uh, you know, in the world of journalism like that, let's call it the 60 Minutes world, is they always want to interview who they can't. You know, who's hard to get to? If you can get Castro, it's a big, big catch. I mean, I, I, the Pope or Putin right now would be big to get if you can really have a real interview with them. But they're hard to get to. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.